Yossi, I'm home. Some of those Cheers episodes between Sam and Diane, a lot of simmering intimations of hot, hot, domestic vio. You are the nuttiest, the stupidest, the phoniest fruitcake I ever met. You, Sam alone, the most arrogant, self-centered, shut Shut your fat up. Make me. Make me. I'm going to bounce you off every wall in this office. Try it, you'll be walking funny tomorrow. Funnier. You know, you know, I always wanted to pop you one. Maybe this is my lucky day, huh? You disgust me. I hate you. Are you as turned on as I am? More. <laughs> Woo! What a fun show. What an adult show for what was then, apparently, still a pretty adult nation. Imagine such sexual candor played for fun today. For fun! Can't be done. Today, Cheers would be a Netflix documentary with a theme song by Mia Farrow and the Sisters of Rape. It's a different time. But at least we don't have slaves anymore. I grew up on sitcoms. I'm a millennial. And since my mom's not Susan Sontag, we had TVs in the home. I grew up on first Nickelodeon, which, by the way, that show Hey Dude, that was a stylistically innovative show. 
uh, very avant-garde. It had the aesthetic of an 80s gay porn film. But anyway, Nickelodeon gave way to Nick at Night every night, and that's when all the old sitcoms would come on. My favorites of the old ones were Twilight Zone, which is not a sitcom, but still the greatest thing ever, and Adam's Family, and, of course, the then-ubiquitous I Love Lucy. I've seen every I Love Lucy episode a dozen times, just as my great-grandmothers did as immigrants watching reruns in the 60s and 70s. When my mom would come home from work or school back then, this is before my time, my great-grandmother loved regaling her with a play-by-play breakdown of that evening's I Love Lucy episode. It was absolutely no obstacle that she did not know a word of English. She saw what she saw. The point here is that in watching every episode of I Love Lucy as a kid, as anyone did pretty much my age or above, with normal-ass parents and normal-ass TVs in the home, we were sharing an experience with several generations. We were forging a relationship with history. My great-grandmothers both died when I was still just a baby. I met them only in faded but real photographic memories. They were orphans of the genocide, but we both delighted together, in a way, in the antics of the Mertzes and the Ricardos. And that brownstone living room, reflecting our own apartments through the magic window of TV. I love the fact that one of the oft-told memories of my two great-grandmothers is like a clip from a sitcom. One of my great-grandmothers had a streak of mischief and liked to gamble. The other was a completely devout Christian who was concerned about first-grandma's soul. One time she expressed this concern, and slot machine grandma said, Don't worry, when you rise up to heaven, I'll cling to your skirt. (laughs) Sounds a little bit funnier in Armenian. But anyway, this is why I'll never forget the time about five years ago, the first time when I referenced I Love Lucy at a friend's family function, and I heard a 24-year-old, American born and raised and college educated, say, what's I Love Lucy? It was torn, just like that. The thread that pulled a century's worth of generations together onto the same couch for the same pleasure was torn apart. Babalu, the Afro-Cuban god of venereal disease. It's true. The sitcom is a fantasy of the American dream. It reflects our living room back at us, or it's a window into the quirky neighbor's house, or the next door bar, or the taxi garage, or the office. You get where I'm going. It celebrates the humdrum of daily life, mostly family life. Mostly it's about what it means to be a family. 
uh, where dramatic situations are created, sometimes out of necessity, but usually out of boredom. Solutions are pursued in a farcical manner until a lesson is learned and forgiveness is achieved. The lesson will be forgotten by next week. Now, certain little cheats tip us off that it's a dream, of course. In I Love Lucy, they never sit on all four sides of the table, so as not to block our view. In Married with Children, Al Bundy can somehow afford a big house in Chicago next to a rich lesbian. And in Cheers, what's the cheat? Can you guess it? There's never any music at the bar. There used to be actual bars that didn't play stupid-ass drunk girl music nonstop at blaring volume. I'm guessing that was pretty hard to find even then. But how lovely it sounds when it's just a bunch of people buzzing and bumbling, as it always is, in cheers. Give me that bareback room tone. Also, when you're a child, sitcoms carry an extra layer of reality, because your own life moves slow. A single day is broken into three dense acts of morning school and night. You have time to cook up mischief, get in trouble, and then deal with the consequences, all before you go to bed. They seem like realistic, idealized versions of home life. I'm talking about TV shows to a kid. They normalize all the yelling and anger you hear downstairs. Sitcoms pretend, biggest cheat of them all, that hatred can be warm. I've been watching Cheers lately for cozy purposes, and I'm blown away by how grown up it is. Like, grown up at a fundamental level. Not just the sexual candor, which is funny because it's true and real and how men and women of the human race actually are. Also, the blend of highbrow and lowbrow. I mean, now, Frasier is the highbrow presence, but he's not a stiff dweeb or Dwight or an eternal twink like those nerds on Big Bang Theory or The Good Place or whatever nerdlinger show of late. He's a lusty man, a real man. He, you know, he's great. You also have different classes of people crossing paths, guest actors waltzing in with mid-Atlantic accents mixing in with the mass holes. You have differing political perspectives, however unannounced, All the usual sitcom tropes are there, of course, over many, many episodes, but the plots usually turn with a touch of satirical realism, not just farcical convenience. And when things get emotional, a dose of truth is allowed. So you're so beautiful, so beautiful. Daddy, you have been saying that I'm beautiful ever since I was a very little girl, but look at me. Not as my father, but like you're looking at me for the first time, and please try to see me as I really am. Oh my God, I, I didn't realize how much you look like your mother. I know. I look exactly like her, and Mom was not. comfortable about her beauty. But that's what made her more beautiful. Your mother grew more beautiful every day of her life. 
This happy blending of cultural roles and voices with a satirical edge is a good way to describe the talent and charm of this episode's guest, Rob Long. Rob joined the writing staff of Cheers in season eight, I believe, and soon became head writer and producer of the show till the end of its run. I didn't actually first know of his work from Cheers. I hadn't seen Cheers as a kid. It was too adult for me. I first found Rob Long between the covers of National Review, where he had a column called The Long View, where he would parody some cultural figure or current event with pinpoint precision. Christopher Hitchens, in a historic takedown of John Stewart and the cult of John Stewart, and the fact that he couldn't even parody Larry King without imagining Hitler as a guest, uh, Hitchens once wrote in The Atlantic, quote, But Rob Long of National Review does King to the very life three or four times a year, with much less reliance on an overdone fantasy guest. Except how can anyone at National Review be funny? Weren't they for Bush, the very mention of whose brain or IQ is enough to ignite peals of mirth from those in Stewart's studio crowd who just know that they are smarter than he? I'm not going to, wasn't going to even try to do a, a Hitchens accent. Um, end quote. Overall, Rob Long has been the executive producer on six TV shows, I think. He co-created George and Leo, starring Bob Newhart, and he co-created Sullivan and Son, which ran on TBS uh, about eight years ago. And he was the showrunner for a few years of the Kevin James show, Kevin Can Wait. And he's developing TV projects all the time, constantly. He's also the author of two very funny books about the business, Conversations with My Agent, and Set Up Joke, Set Up Joke, which are now available together in one volume, um, in a nice, neat, cozy volume. I recommend it for a very, very fun time. He now writes a regular column for Commentary Magazine and has a syndicated short-form radio monologue segment called Martini Shot, also available in podcast form. And he's a regular guest on Greg Gutfeld and shows like that. Yeah. He is a TV creator who has been an openly conservative commentator for decades. That sort of blend, the sort of mixture and versatility, and dare I say, diversity, that resume speaks of, is not exactly celebrated in show business at the moment. The only time in the last decade much of America sat down to watch the same family was for Roseanne, who had to be killed off for representing a little too much of America. Usually they kill off the dads, but she had balls. So now we have the Roseanne show without Roseanne, without the name or the star or the spirit who created it, and it's a bunch of pussies wearing masks. And now, instead of I Love Lucy... We have Being the Ricardos, the new Amazon film by Aaron Sorkin, starring Javier Bardem as Desi Arnaz and Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball. Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball. Why? Was there not a single spunky ginger actress under 54 in all of America to surprise us with this role? The movie's actually not as bad as it sounds. I am not a fan of Mr. Sorkin or his role 
as one of the king mythmakers of modern liberal snoot. But he structured his story smartly enough. The action takes place through a week of the filming of a single episode, Fred and Ethel Fight, in 1952. This is also the week where, behind the scenes, the executives of the show learn that Lucy is pregnant and that the House Un-American Activities Committee has learned she is registered to vote under the Communist Party. All good and well. Though you can already predict the kind of relevant arguments all this high-stakes panic is going to spark. But the overall spine of the film is a sound enough and touching one. It's all about how Lucy needs this show and this set to retain her lifelong fantasy of having a home. The big problem is the cast. Nicole Kidman, as I mentioned earlier, is 50 fucking four years old, whereas Lucy was 41 or 42, and Javier Bardem is 52 years old, whereas Desi was 36. It looks like an Academy nursing home pageant. J.K. Simmons is whatever, as uh, William Frawley, he's fine, but it's a phone-in performance. The only interesting performance comes, shocker, from the one young 37 and little-known co-star Broadway actress Nina Arianda, who plays Vivian Vance, who must suppress her beauty in order to maintain character as the frumpy auntie post-sexual Ethel Mertz. The real problem here is Nicole Kidman, who makes sure you notice her imitation of Lucy's patented who-me eye shift, but who never once in the entire film manages to be funny. Lucille Ball was an otherworldly screwball comedic talent. If I Love Lucy didn't convince you of that, check her out years earlier in her little role in The Women. But never are we allowed to see her as what she was for 60 million viewers each week in the America of 1952. She was an engine of joy. All we get is the rough backstage realities, which are definitely entertaining, to be fair, in this film, but all toward an end that is only sad. Shocker of shockers, Nicole Kidman plays Lucy as tired. Aren't we all? Appearing as it does on one of the streaming services that now define the post-golden age of television, being the Ricardos reinforces the sigh that I feel between the lines of everything Rob Long says about television in our conversation and in his recent commentaries. A sense that TV has abandoned the highest purpose for which it ever existed. To gather the nation around the same couch at the same time and make us happy. Cascada de luz Te quiero alcanzar Llegar a ser parte de ti Nueva York, Nueva York Mis pasos aquí Quiero encaminar A 
Al centro de tu corazón Nueva York, Nueva York Poder cantar En la ciudad de nunca dormir Tus rascacielos subir Siempre subir Tu música Washington Square Washington Square Descubro un sol distinto aquí Never seen it this sparse. And it's 9.30 a.m. I wish. No, I don't know how. I'm an adult. I'm adult. Oh, I, when I got time, I'll come back. I'll, uh, I'm getting another one. Oh, you think it'll work? I think so. I mean, okay. I, this is what this is supposed to be for, is protecting right. from these, this windshield. Oh, yeah, perfect. It's very sensitive because it's a field reporter. You have to explain that to me because I, I, I think I had something like this which was much bigger in the old days. I never understood how to use it. There is a big, I mean, I've I've been using it like a total nincompoop, just oh, that's pressing good. play. And there's nothing, no setting, like the settings. I think it figures it out. Oh. It figures it out. It's not like that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's one little hazard, which is other than wind, like now, um, which the windscreen should protect it from, there's like, sometimes it picks up signals, like randomly. Wow. Yeah, so there's been... There's That's been, like the beginning of a thriller movie, by the way. Yeah, yeah really. Some it's podcast like some, person doing the most benign podcast, over here is a murder plot. There you go. Over here is a murder you know, we're already like... Only murders in the, uh, in the ear wolf. Oh, right, you're exactly right. <laughs> Okay, let me put this down. It's too hot for me, and I need to put this in my pocket. Turn this off. So the reason I was late, as I was talking to this reporter, um, this news broke today. I guess I don't know what this news to me was. It's kind of news to me, but maybe I don't know. That, that, um, I guess Jeff Garland from you know the Curb Your Enthusiasm. Of course, yeah. Goldbergs, I guess he's been fired from the Goldbergs. Oh, really? Yeah, for inappropriate behavior, which like, feels to me like it was um, a lot of people. Like didn't like the fact that he used the word balls a lot and vagina and hugs and stuff, and he called women toots. He like had nicknames for them. Yeah, called them toots. And like in like 2021, but like he should have known better. But 
uh, so people are saying, well, do you think there's more there? So now the argument for the, for the media is like, it can't be that. So there must be more there. So let's write the story that there's more there. And I'm like, there doesn't have to be more there. Anything is... Uh... That he did worse and they just don't want to tell you. But what I was trying to explain to this woman was like, it could be just that he wanted more money or they didn't, or they were tired of writing for him. Or he was just kind of a pain in the ass and they're using this to get rid of him. Isn't that what they're... Isn't that their kind of their playbook is they have this like dossier of... Uh, they collect all yeah. these information on all this information on like basically any kind of <laughs> masculine presence in the business and the moment to <laughs> become inconvenient. Yeah, but I mean that's like a, a, it's still a big decision to make. It's like not a decision you'd want to make. If like the show's working, you want to keep the show on. Right, he's the star of the show. But this is like a Roseanne redo because I mean he's not quite as a pop, he's not like quite as central to the to the concept as Roseanne obviously was. The Roseanne redo was the, the the decision tree there was can we lose her? Uh, and, and and if we don't lose her, what what's the price that we pay? And the price that you pay if you don't lose her is that you lose the network president. That Disney as a company is suffers a big problem because the network president's going to quit. You're gonna you're gonna create a why effect. why would you have to why would the network president have to well, quit? She was a scenario. black woman who was morally offended, mm. and uh, I think said, "Look, either it's either Roseanne or me." I see. And so, if you were the studio and the network, you can't... She's not going to go on TV and say, look, I, I forgive Roseanne. I'm sure they tried everything. Iger, I'm sure, said, look, why don't we sit down with you and Roseanne? And Channing was like, what are you, what are you talking about? No way. Like, she said this terrible thing. I'm not going to sit down with her. She can come to me and apologize. And so, that's what I suspect happened. Right. Here, it's more just, they have a big cast. The show has already been sold. They already know what the number is going to be. Right. You know, what season is it of the Goldberg? It's like so, nine thousand seasons. Yeah, a show it's, that nobody ever watched, but just does well. You know? I, yeah, it's weird. Like I remember seeing the promos forever, and I was yeah. like, "This never, this never made it's a, a zombie case. show." It's a zombie <laughs> show, but it does. You know, it does well, and, and, and uh, I mean, it, it, it does well for them. But I feel like they know, they know exactly what that number is going to be. You know, they know what the what the they projected out what the upside of the show is. Right, and it doesn't need Jeff Garland. Doesn't need and they lost. They lost George Siegel. George Siegel's in it. He died. So they're probably thinking to themselves, "Well, you know, maybe we should prepare this for the next generation. The next generation without Jeff." And and probably the showrunners and those guys are like, "Jeff's a pain in the ass. We don't like it." I mean, I guess you know, it's like it's like they sort of did this. This kind of reminds me of how they, um, even though this wasn't a specific project, but kind of like the way that Jeffrey Tambor was dispatched. Uh, yeah, you know, just like based on nothing of consequence at all as far as I could tell maybe you know more than I, I mean you might you might have heard more than no no look Jeffrey the thing about Jeffrey Tambor is that um, he's brilliant he's really great I think he's I love him yeah he's one of the I mean he really is like you're I mean, it, the, the reason there was a transparent I mean look she wrote I think it's she I can't remember it was Jill Jill changed her name and I don't know whether she changed her pronoun so I'm gonna say they wrote go out on a limb right they wrote <laughs> this brilliant show that was really personal and they wrote a great script I mean Soloway is a she's incredibly talented uh, and it was really unsparing and funny too that first season was really funny and dark and great and all that said it didn't catch it would not have caught fire without Jeffrey a so, hundred per million yeah. percent yeah like, so Jeffrey like really made it I mean which, which is what a great actor is supposed to do right 
Yes. That is the job of the great actor, is to turn this thing that's on the page as good as it is and make it live. If that was a real trans actor, nobody would have given a shit about that show. Well, just like, I don't know. I mean, if it was a real trans actor as good as Jeffrey Tambor, who knows, but... Well, but he's yeah, that's a big... so good. So yeah. they found him. So he did it. He made it come alive. He's fearless. A fearless person. Yes. And he's also you... super Jewish and in a way that nobody is... It's not easy to find anymore. Like, right. his, his kind of Jewishness right. is like his... This, like, burning desire to exist at every moment. Yeah, and, yeah. That's really true. It's like... I, I mean, you know, I've... I, I literally like wrote a whole part of him for him, which oh. he was too busy doing transparent pilot oh, okay. to get well, play to play it in that movie. But the thing about it is that what I, I guess what I mean to say is that, that that when you work with people like that, there's a tax you have to pay. Right. I mean, you know, I would say to Jeffrey Tambor, like even here, I would say you're a little nuts and you're a handful, and and that's. That's kind of that you can't separate those things. I mean, he's nuts in a handful because he's so incredibly engaged in the character and the work and everything, and he doesn't do anything but do that. And he's giving you this insanely great, brilliant work on screen. It's like, I mean, I've worked with actors who just need to talk, and they can just brilliant ones. Have you worked with him? Uh, no, but I've, I've met him a couple times. He um, lives not that far. I mean, he lives in Connecticut. He, Tambor? I thought he lived in Topanga Canyon. No? no, he lives. He lives in at least at least recently. He lives in like some rid rid rid. I can't remember any of the names. Wow. Of wow. He lives in Connecticut. Like he has a theater class there. He's a great teacher. He is. I think. So look, like like when you work with people like of genius like that, it's not. It's never. It's never pain free. Like I, I remember talking. I remember. Uh, uh, J- Judd Hirsch is like Judd Hirsch is like this incredibly genius actor, right? Mm. But J- Judd, it's the process. He needs to talk about, and like he'll start by saying, I-, "I think we need a whole new situation." Yeah, and then you say, "Okay, well, explain it to me," and then he goes through it, and he just needs to talk about it. It needs to be real to him, and he can't do. And Ted Danson is also that way. And Ted Danson is not difficult at all. Ted is he can't like, because he's in every fucking show right. that's ever made. Ted is like this lovely, thoughtful, incredibly decent. Very, very smart person. Ted Danson is exactly who you see when he plays himself on Kurt, Kurt. right? He's just the nicest guy and the sm- one of the smartest guys in the world. But he's got to really, when he acts, it just has to make makes sense. To it has to make sense to him, and he doesn't and he doesn't know how to describe something that doesn't make sense and why it doesn't make sense. He just it's just he'll just point to the the script or he'll point to the part. I mean, I talked to him like on the set, and he'll point to an area of the set where he was. And goes, that part's kind of weirdly drifty and floaty. I don't know. And like he's just talking. You need to he hear just it. Just feels. Yeah, you need to. You were saying this in one of your martini shots, which I've been binging um, because I just found out they're on podcast. Oh yeah, which is great. Are you are you doing them actively right this minute? Yeah, I'm doing them. Okay. I'm supposed to record a bunch of them today, but I'll probably end up doing it tomorrow. Okay, so you load them up. You you kind of uh, you do a Price is Right style. I try to do Price is Right style at least for you know have some in the bank, and then I'll put if something just occurs to me and I have this urge to write it, I'll just write it and stick it in the in the queue. Like I'll, right. it'll it'll just go in the next one. Right. Um, and they're ever. I mean, yeah, most of them are yeah. evergreen. They're not like it's not like the day's news. I'm not talking about typewriters and <laughs> right, right. landlines and right, landlines. Yeah. You're not like, yeah. 
man, the carrier pigeon was so yeah, vital on right. a lot of Warner Brothers back. <laughs> we need to get more 35 millimeter film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for none of that. We don't. We want. We want the reruns to really look good. You know, for the for syndication. <laughs> Desi I did Arnaz. write one that I years ago, and I think I might actually re-record it now with a little addendum, because we should say at the end of shooting or whenever or whenever you're going to move on. Uh, check the gates, right? You just say in a, in a movie set, okay, check, check the gates, check the gates. And the gates are these little, so it's, the, it's literally the, the part of the camera that frames the film as it goes through that registers the image, right? So as the film is moving quickly through the, through the camera, the gates is the section where the film strip goes through between the, the gates and the lens, and, um, or the gates and the opticals, whatever the opticals are you're using. And you got to check those because often a tiny piece of hair will be there or something will happen or maybe the the, 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 the film will have been misthreaded and it, won't, it, it will not have alerted you. And that means that all that entire magazine, everything you shot... It's going to be like... Well, like minutes, in the movies, it's going to be like... Right, you, yellow, you, yeah. you, you can't use it. you got to redo it. Um, but now there aren't any gates because we don't do that. Right. So I said, so what do we say? Like, check the disc? Right. Check the... Ch make sure it's on. Yeah. Just check Just the check button, the, the red light. Check the playback. It's like something. Yeah. And, um... I mean, they ha it happens a lot that a lot, the camera's right? not on. Yeah. Or the sound is... Or, like, something's off and, the like... The backup is in there. Something's off and, yeah. And I don't know what... what I was just thinking last time I was on was about a year ago. And I can't remember what people said. I think people said check the gates still. Because no one has... Like, there's not been this, like, agreement on what the term should be for check the... But really what you want to say is... I think this is the way movies are going, or well, everything's going. Is check the capture, because what the the phrase that people want, or that, that I, a, a very young DP was telling me, that we should be using is capture, because all you're trying to do is capture information. Right. Like all the work of a cinematographer or DP in the past, which was lighting and art, and like basically building a canvas. You think of like The Godfather or any of these great movies that are just like incredible, yeah. incredible cinematography. In the future, and the future is now. It's just completely unnecessary. You actually don't want that. You want the you want the set to be lit to capture as much information as you can. Depending on your post budget, from what right, I, that's you right. Know, that's it right. is a bit. It's yeah. it, it's still in a place where I mean, you know, I could just speak to experience where you do kind of have to if you have a indie a tiny budget, you kind of still have to make sure it's lit the way you want it to look. Kind of. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Because it's, it takes a lot of effort to but eventually that effort, manicure like, it. That but yeah, that's going to go, go down, you yeah, know, sure. like, and pretty soon you're going to walk on a movie set and it's going to be ugly. It's going to look like what I, I look like, like soap opera type of thing. Yeah, or like those old, you know, Whit Thomas uh, sitcoms, uh, like like Golden Girls, you've seen Golden Girls? Oh, where yeah. Where every single surface of that house is lit like the it's Christmas tree. The it's sun. shining. Yeah, yeah right. it's like golden Florida right. Right. retirement. Like, like your house doesn't have that many pools of light. It just doesn't. Right, unless it's yeah, unless you really, yeah, it makes you feel like it makes me feel like I'm living in a dark little place. Right, right, in right. My right. actual home right. when I watch Golden Girls. Maybe that's why it was so popular. You know, part of the charm was that these well, places are so fucking well, well lit. That's what they thought. That's what that's that's what they said. Right. They said, look, look, you you. You want this thing to look bright and cheerful, and either, they're already old ladies. Yeah, you don't so, want to see them decaying right. into their But into they their did grades. that for every show. Every show, yeah. like, I mean, I'm, you know, if you look at your house and you say, okay, well, I mean, it's lit, obviously, because you light it, you do work in it, you read, all that stuff. Yeah. But you, 
there are parts that aren't you don't have all the lights on all, all the time, the time yeah. in the kitchen all the time right. you never see them turning lights on in the kitchen when they go into the kitchen for the first time at three in the morning no it's yeah. like it's, it's like late. right yeah it's already <laughs> uh, there's always some night light on which right. is like the entire lights up the entire uh, neighborhood uh, it's fun to track these I mean you know you've been there from basically like cheers in every way is 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 as classic a sitcom as it seems to me as like fucking I Love Lucy except for the fact that there's color. I mean, yeah. maybe, yeah. right? And shot out thirty five millimeter film. Thirty five millimeter. I Love Lucy was kinescope, I think. It was it was thirty five millimeter because oh, really? that's was that's how it became. That's oh, how right, he made right, so right. much fucking money. He shot it on film, right? That yeah, was that was Desi. his big that was no, his Desi, big right. uh, gamble. His yeah. big gamble. I think when they moved to when they he told CBS he wanted to move to uh, L A. They extracted concessions from him, and then his settlement to them was okay. But at least we get to own it. Yes, and they and said, like, "Fine, we yeah, would we... never want to watch a sitcom's already been on." Right? Or how are they going to watch it? Right? Because at the time there was no such thing as a rerun. Right? I don't think. Yeah, we're like, yeah, where are you going? But I think, yeah, I think he just knew that all this. He knew what a library was, and like it's still valuable. I mean, he was he right, right? Desi well, was right, and they were all wrong. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, he gets. I don't think he gets enough credit. Well, I guess he gets it from anyone who knows, but. Oh, he's a genius. He really like he he saw ahead of all of them, and he was not a studio. The fact that he had this like Cuban band leader acumen that right. saw it is right. interesting to me. You know right. that kind of because it's very it's a very an American story. I like I like when I hear that about. Oh yeah, look that guy was like, and I mean I'm, I'm sure he was a terrible person. I've heard, like I've heard great stories about just how bad he was. What a total rascal and womanizer he was. Like I mean I think he put her through hell, but. Uh, just the idea of knowing then that in a world in which there were really just everything was live uh, or the movies and no one understood what television was going to be it didn't right. it wasn't evident it wasn't like oh I see where this is going um, sure yeah you know Mark Zuckerberg can show us meta his meta vision yeah and we know that 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 could that could that's probably where it's going right right it's, it's crappy now but it's right. probably gonna get there oh yeah no one knew that for television no one said okay eventually there's gonna be this bizarre hybrid system of networks local stations and networks and um, and then eventually hike yeah. into your house maybe there's a Philip K Dick story that's or whatever I don't know whoever it was the sci-fi uh, the sci-fi pair of eyes du jour who saw it as an inevitable thing where, okay, you're, the home cinema is going to be the thing of the future and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But it's hard, it's hard for humans seeing a tiny little black box, black and white screen and comparing it to the big screen and being like, oh, there's any chance these two things are going to merge in, in, in the near future uh, in a way that like makes the big screen obsolete. Now, it hasn't actually happened. I mean, I don't think... I mean, it has in some sense, but like yeah. we still value. There's still enough of us who value the big screen as a thing. Yeah. I think it's, a, it's it's maybe it's a vanishing small number. Oh, it's a vanishing small number. Also, you got a big screen at home. We have a big screen at home. True. Yeah. I mean, a screen, the screen true. size, is not absolute. It's relative to the yeah. where you where you're sitting and how big your head is. The size is not the issue to me as much as the experience like I think like when I I mean you know I've gone to one exactly one film other than my own since 
the pandemic started right. in a theater, and it was uh, it was uh, Licorice Pizza uh, just the other day. How was it? I enjoyed it quite a okay. bit. It's a it's a it's a sprawling type of movie. Okay. Um, and but it 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 hit the spot for me, and I did not mind its long brewers. I see. I don't. I like all of his movies that are big canvas movies. I could not sit, barely could sit through the one, the F, the L. Ron Hubbard one. Master. But did you see it? You see, I was disappointed in that film, but I think it holds up better when you see it as a non. I don't know how you saw it, but I was expecting like this uh, definitive Scientology movie. You know. No, I just, I just was bored and didn't like it, and I didn't like There Will Be Blood either. I didn't think that was that great. I thought it was, eh, I get it. It was like seemed like ponderous and pompous. The way that his great, the movies I really love of his are whip fast, funny, dark. I mean, like Boogie Nights is a masterpiece, and I, I, I mean, and I, Magnolia doesn't really make any sense, but it's like I couldn't, I couldn't take you my could eyes, take off, your eyes it. off of it. Yeah. This one isn't so. This one, in a sense, is I don't even know what to compare it to because it's not actually. A canvas movie. It's much more like because it's much. It's actually just you know. It's it's about this kind of but romance of teenage of being a teenager in the seventies in in the valley in the valley, which is something he knows really well. He's the only filmmaker that I'm aware of, and I may be you know blanking out on something here, something there, but like. He's the only person who really seems to capture L.A. And as a person who grew up in L.A., did you grow up in L.A.? No, I know I grew up back here. You grew up here, so I'm. I mean, I I find it like like frequently kind of interesting that there aren't that many films that actually capture LA and he his do yeah his really do like my god that like the this one might be most of all by the way like right, this one yeah. might be the most profoundly LA movie that he's made for all the like you know as much as Magnolia is cuz Magnolia is a bit stylized and uh, punch and you know punch drunk love is it's kind of in in the vein of punch drunk love but it's not it doesn't have any of his kind of uh, parabolistic uh, flourishes in this movie, like right. the way that the others do. It's 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 a lot more kind of slice of life in, 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 yeah, in its tone. I, I guess what I like, what I loved about his movies were the 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 moments of like unashamed opera, unashamed emotion, right. like when. Bill Macy shoots himself with Boogie Nights. Or Julianne uh, Moore... Ju- I was just going to say yeah, Julianne Moore on, crying. Crying on, on, uh, when she's on... Um, in Magnolia, when she's in the, her scene in the in a pharmacy. Right. And she just breaks down. And she just breaks down. It's like... Seeing her dad on the... She's seeing the da- that her dad died on the TV, if I remember correctly, or not. I can't remember exactly. Oh, I think that was like... That was somebody else. Okay, but, that's yeah, somebody else. Okay. But, but, but all that, he just goes for it. And like sometimes you, if you're writing something like that, or even if you're describing it, someone will like roll their eyes a little bit, like, "Oh, really? Not a little too much, right there." Right. But no, it's great. It's like it was great. But you know what? I have the same feeling about that. You don't share about there will be blood. Like, I feel like he earns his the ponderous. I've, the, the tone of the movie to me is earned. I've seen it now multiple times. So, like, I you know I I don't know I I I try to test my initial impressions when I see a movie again and again. Wow. Good for I, you. I mean, I was able to... I really dug that movie. Like, and I'm not easy to impress on that Look, he's, look, he's an interesting guy. Like the, the, like, the movies are interesting. They're, like, even the ones you don't like, they're, they're thoughtful and put together and like, he like has a vision. One. I like Phantom Thread and a lot of people didn't like it. Oh, that. I like Phantom Thread. Here's the thing about Phantom Thread that I liked. 
that I, I uh, the the guy who plays his um, business manager, yeah, uh, is a real person, and I know him, and he's oh, really? like, he is in fact, he run, he, he's one of the, he and his son run a, a shoe, they make shoes, and the company's George Cleverly, and his name is George Glasgow, and he and his son is George Glasgow Jr. And I've known George Glasgow for 30 years. I've buying my shoes from this guy for 30 years. And now I buy his, from, and he and his son. Yeah. Um, and they have this old, it's like super old school shoemakers. And, um, and it was just kind of amazing. I think he taught, I mean, at some point, Daniel Day-Lewis learned how to make shoes. And that's the guy who taught him. Yeah. And Daniel Day-Lewis is making this movie. He goes, I think you should play my business manager. And he's great. And he's really funny now. When you, when you, when you talk to him about it, he's like... Uh, yeah, I was on the. You know, he's like a normal guy. He's like, I was on the set. You know, he's like, oh, I was on the set with Daniel Day Lewis and of course Paul Tab, Paul Anderson. And he's like, I'm like, dude, you're like now Mr. Hollywood. Yeah. Like he, his, <laughs> he would come to L. A. and he's got like fancy clients. I mean, I think Sylvester Stallone is a client. People are, you know, they, like he's in the know. With it. But, um, but now he's in the business. And I think the last time I saw him, he goes, Well, somebody did approach me about doing another part. I don't really know if I have the time. So like, dude, you're like. You're now a journeyman actor. So yeah. You take a part that's small, act the shit out of it, yeah. and get an Oscar. Yeah. That's how that works. Best supporting actor is your is your. That's the that's the, the best, opportunity. That's the best position in Hollywood. I feel is to be a, a great supporting actor. Best supporting actor is what you want. Best supporting actor because that's the one where like you can you're you're always in demand and. You're always charming. Yeah, John You're, C. Riley. John C. Riley. Yeah, he had it. I mean, I don't know what he's been doing lately, but he had like he was in every single movie since yeah. 2000. John C. <laughs> Riley is insanely funny and also brilliantly dramatic. He's he gives you both. Yeah. It's barbell theory or whatever. As the You're right, uh, right, as right, Mr. right, right, right. Uh, Mr. Phoenician would say. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, I've you know. That's the, that's always been the thing, the part of. I remember George Carlin's kind of aspiring to be. He was saying on like Leno or wherever that he was kind of like aspiring to be a supporting actor in his sixties and seventies, like as a thing. I don't know if it happened for him, but it was know, an ambition but like, he had. I mean, it is a great to be able to play all those parts and just. There's a. I, I saw this. Um, I want to see the screening. So this is going to be a this is a Hollywood story. Uh, up with a, uh, a, a friend of mine who's an actor. She's like I've known her for a long time. I've worked with her. She's brilliant. She won an Emmy last year. Her name is Jody Long. No relation. <laughs> and so, she, but she's in the Academy, and so she's like, look, let's go see this movie, the screening uh, of The Power of the Dog, which is the Jane Campion movie, which I think it's going to get a lot. Of, I think it's going to get a lot of Oscars, but I don't think it's going to get Best Picture. I don't think it's going to get as many. I have a prediction about the Oscars, so I'll put that on the record. Yes, so, let's predict. So, uh, um, I'm going to go see it. It's a really interesting picture. It's really interesting. Probably not for everybody, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, and Benedict Cumberbatch is, like, really good. Despite the ridiculous of his name. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Right, uh, right. Which seems like he made it up, but he didn't. Anyway. Is this his real name? It's a real name. Benedict Cumberbatch. Why would you, like, invent that? I don't know. Anyway, so... Uh, see the movie, and then there's a moment where, and then there's some, you know, like there's some well-known people around in the theater, and I mean, it's a small theater. It's a, it wasn't the DGA, but it was like at a hotel up there. Um, and uh, one of the people behind me was John Turturro, the actor, of course. And I think he's there with his wife. 
and he's leading the conversation after the movie. So after the movie, it's, a, it's an Academy screening. After the movie, you gotta, you know, you gotta have a little conversation, and right. then the publicists identify everybody in the theater, and then start steering people towards those people. So my friend Jody was like, suddenly she was like, the young guy who's actually really, really good young actor. So the, the publicist is like steering her to him, and then she was like, okay, well, what are you like? What are you in? I'm like, well, I'm not in the Academy, but I'm a DGA and I'm a WG. Okay, great. So she steers me to Jane Campion, who's lovely and incredibly just charming and funny and wonderful. Um, and like, so I, I've never seen this happen. This is how it works. Anyway, the tour is behind me. And there's a scene where uh, uh, there's a dinner party scene. And there's like a bunch of older actors there who have arrived for dinner. And I hear him saying, who is that guy? Who is that guy? To his wife. Like, who is that guy? And as I'm saying it in my head, who is that guy? Who is that guy? He's familiar, and the name is like... And then we both say at the same time, that's John Carradine. Oh, shit. Who's like, you know, I haven't seen him for a while, but he's just a great actor, and he's kind of like, he's got a great, long, craggy face, and he looks... He's just perfect casting for that role. Um, and we both said at the same time, I'm like, wow, that'd be great to be John Carradine, who was like a big, you know, big movie star in the 70s. And, uh, and now he like he looks great. He looks like a, I would put him, you know, if you're looking for the guy to play the president. He's the guy to play. He's the guy to play the president. Would you, would you put, would he be the guy to play the president in, even in like, if you had a, like a, a weird, quirky, let's say TV comedy where there's a president? A yeah. A peep style. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, uh, well, look, he's really talented. All those guys can do everything. So those old guys. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's. It's, I mean, Totoro, I would say. Like, Totoro is like. He's great, too. He's great. I, I mean, wanted to turn around and say, can I tell you how much I loved you in Miller's I, Crossing? Miller's Crossing. I have to rewatch Miller's Crossing. It's been. It's so great. 20 years. It's like, so great. Okay. And he's so good. I remember his in, intense presence in that movie, but it's been so long that I've seen, since I've seen it. I was like eight, literally 18. Um. So I don't have a, like a fresh yeah, impression, but I have to rewatch it. Got Gabriel that, Byrne in it, and Albert Finney, and Marcia Gay Harden, and John. That's Sotoro. the Coen Brothers, right? Yeah, Coen Brothers. Yeah. And there's another, and there's a. Uh, oh, and Tortura's got this great scene where he's he going to. great in the night of. He was in the night oh, of. He was in the night of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where they're going to kill him? Gabriel Byrne's going to kill him, and he takes him out to the woods to sh- kill him. And Tortura just is just begging for his life in a way that you just seem super real but also super funny and like the weird the way the Coen brothers always it's always yeah. kind of funny yeah um, it's just great yeah they do a good I know they do a good job with like abject emotional breakdown scenes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. squeezing that for all it's worth because it's always it is funny it's funny it is funny to have an abject emotional breakdown in movie. Never happens in like real life that way. No, but I mean, all those people are in such stress. I mean, you just like you, like your heart breaking for Bill Macy, who you know is like the whole plot is falling apart in Fargo, and he's being investigated, and he's furious, and it's and, and he's trying to hold it together, and like, it's yeah. just a great, great performance. You know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's William Macy's great at. Uh, or Bill Macy, as they say in the business. As we say, Bill Macy in the business. <laughs> Having had two meetings with him, I can say Bill he's Macy. Bill Macy, he's uh, he's great at like, uh, he's great at the being a pathetic bad guy. Like as somebody who has a some sort of kind of uh, you know 
ultimately filthy kind of ambition of some kind that yeah. completely falls apart because he's too pathetic to pull it off. Right. And then, but he makes you feel bad for him in failing at that. Like, yeah, no, I, I, that's like, but, but the, those. I think the the thing about these actors is, it's, I, I would say that with Jeffrey Tambor too, is even through their sort of, even though they're larger than life and they have this sort of operatic way of doing everything, uh, it, they legitimize it all. They make right. it all seem like real, not just real, but like completely legitimate and earned and there, there's something about that that I think is really I don't even I don't know how to quantify it but you just know it when you see it but somebody who's like this is over the top and I believe every minute of it yeah I mean and I can I you know with Jeffrey Tambor I I identify it with the the Jewish desire to exist Bill Mace is not right. Jewish but but there's still that there's something where like there's this you know in, I think in principle it's like there's this desire there where no matter how no matter how absurd or the, the key no matter how ridiculous the like the object of the ambition or whatever the stakes are in their uh, you know their for their character or whatever they pull it off because it's like I no I need to do this right. for me to exist I need to do whatever this yeah. fucking ridiculous right. thing is you right. have me in in this plot <laughs> like right this right. is all I have right and you know, it's hard to do. I mean, like that's why the good ones are good. You know, they like yeah, and why I think they probably are a little bit ornery. Yeah, ornery and maybe a little bit uh, uh, hard to corral. You know, because they just they have to be a little bit free. And these are all excuses for these are all excuses that really awful people give for their terrible behavior. But they but they are. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't apply to people who are brilliant and lovely. True, and, and, but it just may be just a little complicated, you know. Yeah, I mean, I that you know, I certainly, I certainly feel like we're dangerously careening away from any sort of like, I mean, like we're in, into like the land of purely HR determined artistic workspace where right. like Netflix is figuring out that if you if you just minimize all possible disruption. And all possible, you know, difficulty on set and everything. It's just the be- that's just the most worthwhile way. Whereas the old style way was, give them whatever they want to get right. this guy in your picture, right? And make him happy. Fight for three months, four months while you make it, and then uh, you want to kill each other, and you're gonna kill each other. But then the movie opens and it's a huge it's hit, a huge and you, it's like childbirth. You forget all of the trouble. Right. I mean, yeah. Look, it's an I, arc in itself. Yeah. That every time that happens. Absolutely, it's like a little uh, story. But I, I would say like. The, the 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 downside of you know like I, I think of all these streaming services now pretty much all of the show business now is like uh, uh, we're gonna should we wait for the kids to walk by? <laughs> it's okay. so children be, are walking by yeah children are uh, walking the future by. the future's walking by the future's walking yeah. by and it is gone all right so I was gonna say it was like I think of all those big streaming services actually every entertainment company now is like um, you know, fast fashion. And I just went through Europe. When you, did you go to Europe? You go walk through. I was in Paris, Madrid, Budapest, like yeah. Milan. You walk through. All the stores are the same. Not just yeah. the fancy stores. I mean, there's a Zania, and there's a this, and there's a that. Um, there's no Hermes store in Budapest yet, but probably that's coming. Um, and then you go, and then there's like fast fashion, H and M, Zara. That's all there. Right. So everybody kind of like. That's what. The, that's what. That's what media is now. It's just like you've been pretty much. It's all you've the got same. some choices, but like everybody's got the same choices. Yeah, yeah. And that's the downside. I mean, the upside is that some of that stuff's really good, right? The upside is that some of it is really good, but I've just you know, 
I hate to be uh, I hate to be grumpy grumpy about this shit because it's just too easy. But since the pandemic started, I started to notice like I started to notice the sameness of all of it. Real in a kind of very it hit me right. in the face like a ton of bricks. Like right. oh my god, like if it's an original one of these streaming original programs and it's not a legacy or it's not like a grandfathered in type of thing, you know? Right. Like it is they all kind of are the same and they have these they have like the same little formula of diversity that's depicted on every in every frame and it must be in every frame they have the same sort of uh, milk toast factor to the relationships where men aren't really allowed to be men in a way that's honest. yeah that's a little of that right no I hear you I, I, I would just say like the the difference here is that there's we, we still operate. I think people. I saw, told this to a bunch of students in Budapest when I was <coughs> there. Like, where were you there recently? Yeah, I was there like two weeks ago, three oh, weeks ago. Shit. I was invited to go next month, but I don't know if I'm gonna make it. It's it's beautiful now. I've heard it's great. I'd yeah. love to go. And there's like uh, Christmas decorations and everything's gorgeous. I was gonna say it was like um, uh, that if you are it, the 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 challenge if you make movies and stuff. Is to free your mind from the studio gates metaphor, where you need to let, you need to be let into the gates. Like I have an idea, I have a script, I want I want a studio to make it, and you just got to figure out a way to break into the into the business with on your own and utilizing the tools you have, which is like pretty amazing compared to what tools they had 10, 15, 20, 30 years right. ago, let alone. 60 years ago. Well, it would have been almost impossible in those days unless you were able to raise a ton of money yeah. off screen. Now you don't need to raise a lot of money and you don't need distribution. You can pretty much, you, that's a, that you, there's, there's channels for you, not just online distribution, but like film festival channels. And you just have to plot your career. And so, so one student said to me like, well, what if your script you've written is like uh, expensive and needs like uh, special effects? And I'm like, well, you should write a different script. Right. To start, yeah, and that should be the thing that you, because you need investors to invest in your, yeah, you need your, yeah. yeah. I mean, people need to like this has been, you know. I mean, obviously, this is a path that I followed as well, and it's like you have to, you have to learn how to think practically early, and a lot of people just don't want to do that. But then it's like if you're not going to think practically, you're not, you know, in terms of budget, you're not treating it as a serious endeavor. Yeah, and you're just saying like, what I want is I want somebody. To give me twenty million dollars, and I don't, and the, and the fact that no one's willing to do that makes me mad. Like, right. okay, well, all right, that 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 ultimately is the attitude you want to expunge from yeah. your heart. The idea that like that the that the doors that the doors are unfairly closed on you because no one will give you twenty million dollars. Well, yeah, that's such a that's I don't know what I mean. That's such a fantasy land existence that it's hard to even understand where it comes from. Like, it's like it's one thing if you've been a successful kind of whatever screenwriter and you're waiting you're, you're like you've been kind of anxious for your big break but that sort of that whole system I don't know it's a it's a it, it works differently now it seems yeah it's also like it's it's a weird kind of it shows you it just is a lack of seriousness about the business which is uh, the, the very act of complaining about it is would be worrying to anybody giving you money because it looks like you're not paying attention yeah like I have a friend you know I have a friend who's like a, a very successful lawyer uh, and he wants to be a writer, and so he's written a bunch of scripts, and they're uh, and they're they're okay. And he's got an idea for a sitcom. And he wants to work on it, and it's like it's fine, it's fine. Because well, what? Why won't anybody make this? 
Right. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, just they don't know who you are, and you know, you need a showrunner and all sorts of things. And he goes, well, this feels like they should be wanting this thing. And I, what I want to say to him is like, okay, why won't you hire me on your law firm? Right. Like, I sh shouldn't you just hire me? Yeah. I'm smart. I can think legally. I can read a book. And like, there's the la your lack of understanding that there's a whole skill here and a skill set and experience and all those things. It doesn't. It's making the opposite case for your yeah investment worthiness in a way. You know. Well, let me. I mean, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but what? How is it that? What's the story behind how you got your way into Cheers? What was the what was the path? Well, into there? it was like first of all, vastly different time, so it can it can no, never be repeated again. Of course. So this is all just fairy tale stuff. But um, you know, t nothing was TV was not a closed business. It was just everybody was busy and they didn't have a pathway in, not because they wanted nobody to come in, it's because nobody thought about that. Um, and so I went to film school and then I had a, a, a partner, writing partner, was here in New York. And we wrote a couple spec scripts together, and then we got no. I couldn't get anybody to read them, but that's only because I didn't really know what to do. And then by the time I figured out what to do, uh, I was, was in what? LA, which is like you, you back then. This is like the pre-internet days. You watch TV, the shows you like, and you write down the names. You could still do this, by the way. This is actually still works, but just easier now. You write down the names of the writers on the shows that you like. Uh, and you had to watch the shows and you had to write it down. There's no TiVo. You had to, like, watch it and write it down really quickly. Um, and uh, you only are looking for the writers on shows that you like that are low-level writers. So story editors, co-producers, story, what they should be called executive story consultant. All These are all levels of writer on staff writer. And then you get their names and you call up the Writers Guild. And you had to call it up. And you, had th and it was the, you asked for the agency line and they would connect you to a person and you'd say, I need the agents. You could only ask for agents for three writers. And then you had to call back. Now, of course, it's online. So right, you can go on. And you, know, you go on and you like you get the names of the agents. And then you start compiling a list of agents that represent young writers on comedy shows that you like. So basically, shows and work and writers who you admire. And, and so you think, oh, you know. And what, you discover, what I discovered back then was that there were like three or four agents in town represented all the young writers I liked. And then you send those agents a letter, a query letter. Hey, here's who I am. Here's what I got. Would you read it? And uh, they all said yes. Uh, three, three, three agents all said, well, one, two said yes. Uh, and one said, um, one didn't say anything. And so then I called her. Uh, and her assistant put me through to her. And then she immediately started yelling at me and telling me that like she's busy and she's building a house in Ventura which is a dumb idea I should never build a spec house if I have to build a spec house don't build one and yes she wants to read it I, she thought she made that clear hey how are you good to see you uh, I, I thought she she thought she made it clear and I'm like well we've never spoken before but I realized that this is the woman you just do not interrupt while she's yelling at you and then she said well send it for God's sake send it I've been, I'm, I've been looking for it she lied to me right, right. Uh, and then I, so I sent it, and then uh, the other two, like one guy was at William Morris, who I really thought was going to sign us because uh, his assistant called and said, please put your spec scripts on your front steps. The William Morris Courier will pick them up this afternoon. And I did. I thought, okay, well, we're done. We're in. We're in. 
This is it. This is, we're in. William Morris Courier picked them up this afternoon. And a day later brought them back with a letter saying, uh, thank you very much for your submission. They do not, uh, they don't, uh, we're not interested at this time. Uh, and then the other guy kept stringing me along, but was, wanted to sign, but kept stringing me along. And then the, the woman the, who's yelling and screaming at me uh, read them and said, get in here. Um, uh, this is not like, this is like 19, right around now in 1989, right? Uh, get in here and it just so happened that uh, my writing partner was in LA at the time because he was shooting a commercial an ad he's an ad business and so we went and had a meeting and she said listen here's the here's the deal this is Ventura woman Ventura yeah. house yeah. yeah here's the deal uh, it's the holidays um, so I, I want to go into the holidays knowing that you're your clients um, are you clients I'm like, yeah, sure, yes, yes. So, okay, here's what you got to do. I need another spec. You got to write a new spec, uh, which I then learned was like she just given us busy work, so we wouldn't call her. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you and, and you and, and what are these names? We had our names on the title page, our actual names, um, like a full name. Like I had two middle names, so I was Robert C B Long. And she says, do I call you Robert C.B.? Is that what I call you? And I said, no, you Rob. Said, then they put that, you're Rob, okay? We're not, uh, what are you, like the, the baron of whatever? Like, <laughs> all right, sorry. So, so we changed all that, and then, and then don't hear from her. It's Christmas, and go back to L.A. And, and after Christmas, and then she calls, like, right after the New Year. She says, put on your clean pair of pants, because you're going to go, and you're going to uh, uh, meet with a writers of Cheers because they have money because her agency packaged that show and she, they see the budget because they have money for staff writers and they don't use it because they just, it's just they're too busy like they're like what do they have to hire a staff writer now and the staff writer was like they paid you I don't know nothing basically and you paid by the week and uh, you got no screen credit so in the seventh season of Cheers we don't have screen credit I think I think that's what it was and uh, but it's really great like you learn and and they pay you like not a lot but they pay you like this is insane this is the best so we went in had a meeting we liked them they liked us um, and they were really great because we they asked us to pitch uh, episode ideas which we did and they hated all of them but they thought oh I get it like I see where you are and then they had us write an outline then they pitched us a story and we wrote an outline for that and it was terrible but it was within range like they're, they told me later like it was terrible but it was in the it was the kind of terrible that a new writer to a show would do that seemed to have potential and so they just took a flyer and said okay 10, 10 weeks and then it became another 10 weeks and then we stuck around and the show was on had been on already for you know 7 years so it already knew what it was doing right and then by the end of it we were we were running the show with two other guys and uh, like two years, three years later. And it all, always seems like that's a huge trajectory. But a show like that, like you knew what a Cheers episode was and what it wasn't. So you, you, we weren't really running the show. We were just stewards of it. You were, we were operating just, the, yeah, yeah, you were, you, yeah. the ship was sailing. You, you we were, we were keeping an eye on the machine, making sure, well, we were the boilers of the machine, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
which is an ideal place to start. Like a show you love. I'm assuming you love Cheers. Yeah, it was great. You know, it's incredible. It's everyone's favorite show. Like many, for many, the favorite show of all time. Um, and you know, I was I started watching it like in earnest during the pandemic because it felt really? like yeah because wow. I was like I mean I've seen I've obviously seen episodes here and there and here and there I've heard people say that, that like the pandemic they started watching Cheers well I mean you we all missed having a pl- a public place where everyone knows right. your fucking name yes that's right yeah right right and where there are people and where there's camaraderie and where there's some lot you know public life it's funny because I have a friend of mine who I've known a long time not a long time but but you know you know ten years almost. And uh, he told me that he and his wife, especially his wife, were watching Cheers during the pandemic. And he's like, you know, it's really, it's really good. I said, well, thank you. I said, had you ever watched it before? And he says, you know, I really hadn't. It really wasn't my thing. I'm like, oh, so like all this time we've been friends, you have no idea what I really do. Because, you know, other people would tell me it was good, so I assumed it was good, <laughs> but I just didn't bother to watch it. So I kind of admired. <laughs> That's always great when people, I mean, it's funny to what degree people in your life, I mean, I've noticed this in my minor way, it's like they will just not, they will just not bother watching your creative, or like consuming your creative output, and just like they'll be happy to talk about it peripherally yeah. forever. <laughs> I actually think it's fine. Like, I kind of feel like, I, well, somebody once, this is a long, long time ago, and I, I really, I had, and this is what made me process this, but somebody called me once and said, look, I got a problem. This guy, our mutual friend, has asked me uh, I've seen his movie, and he asked me what I think, what I thought of it, and it was terrible. It's terrible, and it was in fact terrible. Um, what did you say? And I said I thought it was great. I told him I thought it was great. Yeah. And he goes, really? What? Well, you just told him you thought it was great? I'm like, yeah. He's a friend of mine. Yeah. He made a movie, and you don't want to say that you enjoyed the cinematography because that right. immediately means you hated it. What's what skin off my nose is it to tell him that it was great? He's a friend of mine. He made it. It's done. It's not like he can fix it. Right. People think, that's the thing, people feel like, people, what people, I feel like, don't really process when they comment about movies or anything to do with film stuff. It's like, you can't just, like, spruce it up a little bit and, like, go back and fix some typos. No, it's done. It doesn't done. work that way. It's yeah. over. Right. <laughs> and it, even in the editing room, you're severely limited by what you actually fucking shot. Right. Can't go back and reshoot it, you know, most of the time. Uh, unless you have t- endless money, and it's like you're no, this isn't like this isn't like a piece of writing that you can just sort of right, you know right. do one more pass on. That I, you know, I had another friend who made a documentary, a really great one about Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina, and the the flood part of it, and the uh, the failure of the of the levees and the Army Corps of Engineers and that kind of thing, and uh, and he had a screening of it in pro- in process. Yeah, and he was like super clear about what he wanted. It's like, what uh, what did you get? What did you not get? Yeah. What made sense? With it? He was like, had very specific questions he wanted answers to. And that was like perfect because you could say, I told him, I said, look, you, he's, I mean, he lives in, 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 in New Orleans, most, a huge part of the year, half the year there, half the year in LA and London. But like I said, you live here, you know how the city works geographically. It's actually a very complicated city, yeah. geographically, and um, you know it. So it's I need more geography. I need New Orleans 101. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, I really do. And I know the city 
I'm okay. I'm like fairly familiar with it. But I got lost in some things and I need help. Yeah. And he's like, okay, that's good to know. And he put it in and it makes the documentary that much more powerful, you know. I was reading this PC last night. It's like a, a, a not not by a Trump supporter, but like an agnostic, saying, you know, for all the talk about collusion, this and collusion that, Trump, the Trump administration was much tougher on Russia than Biden or Obama. Like, actually, our our stance towards Russia got tougher. For those four years, that's what I was. That's how I saw it. Yeah, and like in, in material ways. Now he, you know, he he wouldn't condemn him from the presidential debate podium or whatever, right. which was sort of irrelevant. Because well, that's also he his style. Yeah, he wouldn't. But, yeah, but he didn't like it. Was he didn't he didn't let him build a pipeline? He armed the Ukrainians. He armed them. I mean, he and also held back arms because they didn't investigate whatever. Like, but 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 that was a, that was a one shipment of arms that he gave. So it's like you, if you're Putin, which president do you prefer? Biden. Of course, for you prefer sure. a senile, right? A senile shell. It's like of a there's man. no other way around it. Like that's like just materially true. And it was a really interesting piece. I thought, oh yeah, I hadn't really added it up. But he like he added up all the terrible, all the not terrible things because Putin's terrible. But like all of the tough decisions that were taken under Trump. Right. And uh, you think, wow, I didn't, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, if you're just watching CNN talk about collusion, 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 it's like a totally made-up story. Yeah. And, and then ignoring anything of substance that had to do with... God, if you're Putin, you must be thinking, like, these people are insane. I mean, he, he obviously... I mean, now, there is, a, there is an angle that, again, I'm not nearly knowledgeable enough to understand, but it feels like there is some sort of window for the possibility of some kind of a better relationship with Russia than what we've been dealing with for all these years, especially with the specter of China looming. And I know it seems like they're like destined to partner up with China, but is that really what's is that really what what the what the tea leaves say? I mean, is there really no chance for US and Russia to be a little bit more chill? I don't see how that's possible. If you know, and I don't actually don't see how China and Russia hook up, except as a very very foolish way to troll the U.S. the Americans. That's right. I don't really think there's no there's no particular benefit to that. I mean, to me, it feels like they have separate uh, existential needs, right? Uh, and and they are different. Uh, Russia Putin, and China. Yeah, Putin wants simply wants the territory back. He wants the Ukraine back. He wants Georgia back for sure. He wants he wants to reassemble under a loose coalition the former Soviet republics. And he's broke, but uh, but the theory is that you can do that and with military might and uh, and and a, and a, a, a global footprint. In strategic areas, that you'll be you'll be a player, right? That's but that's been pretty much been, by the way, Russian policy since the czars. It's never like we're gonna we're gonna become an economic superpower. It's always just like we're gonna be so big, you really have to deal with us. Um, China is different. China, it, actually, China's sort of on the other side of it. Uh, China wants inward growth but also political stability, which it's discovering it's really hard to do. 
um, because growth means wealth, and wealth means it's hard to scare people. Right. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, it has access to foreign markets that is probably going to, you know, about 167 companies, Chinese companies, will be delisted in American uh, uh, stock exchanges in 12 months. That, that is a consistent policy from Trump to Biden. There's been no difference in that policy. Uh, so, and, and then you look at like what's happening now with their, their housing prices, right? The, 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 I mean, you have a, a million Chinese people, maybe more, who gave Evergrande money to buy a house. They're cre technically creditors of Evergrande, right? The way Deutsche Bank or whatever is creditor. But, and the Chinese government's gonna have to screw over all of its big creditors because they're gonna have to make those people whole. Like those people who paid money are going to have to get houses, and if they don't, or if there's a delay, that's going to create unrest. And the Chinese hate unrest of any kind. The one kind they really hate, which is I think is the kind that Americans strategically should be encouraging, uh, is they don't like ethnic separatism. And to the West, we see what they're doing—the Uyghurs in the West. But there's also ethnic separatism in the North. Uh, if you go to Dongbei or to Manchuria in the North. Um, you look at those people, they're not Han Chinese, they are Korean, they look Korean, they are from the Koryo Empire, ancient Koryo Empire, and you go down to the south, these are Southeast Asians down in like southern China, they have an affinity now to Thailand and to Vietnam and to Cambodia, places like that. Uh, the, the, the Han Chinese are tend to be extremely racist, basically, and they have a word for the, the, the Southeast Asian word they use in Mandarin, the general word in Mandarin, but it translates to jungle Asian, mm. which is um, kind of their N-word. Right. Um, and so there's, and, and, there, and there are all these separatist movements, right? Uh, so their struggle is going to be, how do you keep this country stable, growing, and unified? And there's no history, now maybe it's changing, right? There's no Chinese history of expansionism. They don't, the Chinese don't think, the way the Russians think that we need a buffer here and a buffer there, they don't think that. They don't, they, they to the extent that they want to reclaim anything, maybe it's Taiwan. However, the, the success like they want to reclaim Taiwan. Yeah, but maybe they'll, they might be able to reclaim Taiwan without doing much. Oh, they, yeah. They don't have to fight door to door. If, you're right. If they don't, if they can do it without doing much, all the better, or yeah. all the smarter. Um, Come up with a plan, stake a Taiwanese politician, I mean, make it slow. How have you navigated, or how have you, like, the fact that you're a public, conservative-leaning intellectual, and you have been for decades, at the same time as you've been working actively in the TV business for decades, and I don't think I've ever asked you literally how it is that, like, these two things, because I'm not aware of anyone else who does this. Oh. Yeah, well, like, one thing is like, uh, no, no liberals in Hollywood uh, read any of the places what I write for, so they don't <laughs> they don't read. And for, for a long time, when I was writing Nash, for National Review, I, I was writing there almost. I've been writing there for almost thirty years. That's I, I wrote. I wrote. I, I was reading you for years yeah. in National Review before. I, think I even knew people, you were writing. A lot of TV people in Hollywood just they thought it was the Nation, right? And like, it's like oh, you're National it has the word Nation. Yeah, I think in it's it. Nation, and they're like, oh, okay, well, fine. Um, but they don't really read it, and they don't really care. I send my agent, uh, my agents, I send them both, like, my pieces I write for commentary. Um, right, which are great, by the way. Thank you, but really I send them all them. those, and like they're like, oh, this is great. And, uh, you send it to them for what reason? Because, yeah, my, my agent asked, he's like, hey, uh, someone told me 
well, one of my agents is conservative, so she reads it. She's like, hey, someone, uh, uh, your, what's your name, sent me this, this piece you wrote. Like, it was great. Like, how do I get on that list? Like, he's mad. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you could subscribe. Right. But, uh, Common. but I know you're not going to do that because you're an agent. You don't want to pay any money for anything. Right. Um, uh, I'll send it to you. Send me a PDF. Good. Now, you know, so the problem is that I send it to him, and then he, like, once a month he reads it all. And then he wants to talk about it. I'm like, dude, I, I wrote that three months ago. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Right. But people don't understand you don't want to talk about anything before you read Yeah, right. Like, but I think for them, I, I think I think it was important, um, for better or worse, uh, when Trump was president to tell people that I, that I was not a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, which I was not uh, in, by, by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was a terrible president. But you um, had to tell them that you were. I had to tell them that, like, well, but they were. But he mostly was asked, "What do you think about Trump?" Like, and then, I, I've actually found, I don't know, maybe on the periphery of show business, people care. I still think. I mean, but let's say you were a fan of Trump. That wouldn't have well, gone over so well. No, but like the question is. Are, are, no, maybe not, but like it wouldn't have been relevant. I mean, it wouldn't have been. I, I don't think I would have any impact. I mean, maybe, but I just don't think it would have any impact on where I am in the business and what I would be doing. Like, I just, I would never ever want to write anything that would involve that because I think that's not funny. Um, I don't like it when people do it on the left. I don't. I don't think it's funny when they do it then. You mean like now? You mean like anything like? Um, like politically set or something where like what do you what what is it that you would not which that you would steer clear from because I'm thinking of like I thought that for example Roseanne which was the the, the first two episodes of the uh, Return right 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 were really well done oh like, yeah I, I was it was like, a really great show they were did a great job they, yeah. I think the show is still really good but I th- well, but, I would. The, but they started from a position of saying we're gonna which I think they ultimately chickened out at. Uh, they started the position of saying we're gonna we're gonna tell the truth that this is a person who believes this and we all have those people in our lives and we're gonna represent her right and and she was there to represent there, herself right uh, I I still think that instead of firing her they should have steered into that and they should have had an episode about that that's what I would have done and yes Yes, but that's not how the. It doesn't yeah. seem how they work. It doesn't work that way anymore. Well, it's right. like there's some things that you just, that just that that was an unlucky set of circumstances, and that you know, and and there was probably no way out from there. But I still, I'm still shocked that in this incredibly baroque, interesting time that we live in, that TV shows are about nothing. They're about like. Uh, what ha- weird, weird parallel universe fantasies? Totally. And like, really? Because you don't think it's funny that like, look, everybody, everybody in America has mostly a grandparent or some relative who's just gone insane with politics. Like, everyone has either there's a young person in your life or who's a zoomer. Like, it's right. I mean, right. it's not just the old people. You no, know, that's what insane. I mean. Like, like you have, like you have a young person who's who's idiotically just announced they're trans for no reason. Right. And then you have an old person who's like, well, I know this is Q. The Q is going to tell me how to like Q and going to tell me like you, there's so much funny stuff that it seems like well, 
there's, it's not even material. It's like it's like it's what's happening in the light in the world. Well, it's because well, that's the thing. It's like there's no there's clearly an absence of interest and in honestly and honestly grappling with with what's going on and with with anything having to do with reality, which is now reality being like an endless series of online trends and viruses that like. That, that just capture inflame people's minds. Right. Well, here, 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 but here's the problem, right? For the show, for show business, it's like when it starts to become like. I mean, I don't. This is incendiary. I don't mean it like this. It starts to become like so the Soviet Union, right? Where there's approved entertainment, and then all the really funny stuff is sums dot is like under the table. Here's this. You got to read this comic book. That is that. I'm not saying that that's bad for. Uh, the consumer necessarily it probably is but it's really bad for the business like the the business should should not be you should not be allowing young people to be hilarious on TikTok and on YouTube and in and on, in comedy clubs if you go to comedy clubs now they're like basically screeds against political correctness like, yeah. like the comedy stand up comedy is having a resurgence because of that like that is bad for the business because what you're saying is Crowd-pleasing entertainment, we're not allowed to do, uh, and that's dumb. Like, and I don't think it's sustainable. I think somebody's going to just there, there's like, who are the next Matt and Trey? Who are the next? Those people are there, and they're going to do something great, and and everyone in showbiz is going to be like, I didn't know you could do that. Like, you know, it's a generational problem, right? The the older generation that now likes money and likes their house in Brentwood. Uh, doesn't want to really put that at risk. Right. But a younger generation that's like, I live in a shitty apartment with cottage cheese ceilings in West LA, what do I care? That generation should be encouraged to take risks and to say stuff that's, you know, I mean, look at, look, you know, we, we now legitimately say to each other, we can look at a Saturday Night Live sketch from three years ago and say, well, you couldn't do that now. <laughs> three years! That is a sign of a culture that is dying or dead and needs to be regenerated, and that's going to happen for young people. Who, you know, you, you can't cancel somebody who's broke. Right. Or you, can, you can't cancel conservative. But what you can do is just sort of gatekeep them out of the, from, from kind of getting, getting any traction in the mainstream world. Yeah, but the mainstream world doesn't even exist anymore. Right. Well, that's an interesting thing I also wanted to, like see your view on because I, I, I see like one space I see where and let me know when you're yeah I got, I got another 20 minutes at least yeah um, like like you know obviously the pod, in podcasting I'm, I'm, I become aware in the last year of this world of podcasts that are completely subversive to what we even understand is just you know even like normal dissenting uh, yeah spheres. right and it's like the, the, all the energy seems to be there and and my in my brain because I've I've been I've been trying to fashion a path in 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 this you know mainstreamy world. Like um, I'm wondering how these things are going to collide, and is there any is there any possibility to to bring some of that energy from the Samizdat and underground right to you know to a broader platform? Is there that chance? How is that going to possibly happen, or is it just going to be like a total alternate universe, a totally alternate? And the, and the and the mainstream is just cease, going to simply cease to exist, and we don't even know what it's going to look like when all of this side of kind of reassembles. 
um, and recalibrates. Yeah. You know, because I know people who don't watch TV, like young people. Yeah, probably. I don't watch TV. Zero TV, z- and, and like, you know, they'll watch the occasional movie everyone's talking about. But like mainly, and they listen to tons of podcasts, like whatever, or whatever right, right, else, right, you know. Right. And it's like, this is interesting because the diet, like their diet is severely different. And they mine just, is, mine is. Uh, I would say two things. One is I feel like the, the, um, the only way that that will happen is if the, you first have to be honest about it. And so I feel like the, the people I know who are in the sort of Samizdat area are just simply not really fully bluntly honest about what they're really saying. If the idea, like, I want to be on a larger platform, will it ever, like, no. What you want to know is, can I do this and make money? Like, everyone I know in show business is rich, and I want to be rich. And can I be rich and also be subversive and undermine the dominant yeah. politically correct culture? And the answer to that is, who knows? But um, that's the question. The question isn't, like, oh, can the culture this, can the culture that? The question is, can I be can you make, can money? Be, make money in show business this way? Right. Um, and so you have to be honest about it because then you then you then you know what you're really doing and you can you can tell where you're. What is the dishonesty that you're seeing? Well, people like weasel wording it, saying like, "Well, is there some way to have a have my my work get a, reach a broader platform and all that stuff?" What people really talking about is they want to be richer than they are right. now because you can do you can make all the YouTube videos you want and they're free, and you can make all the podcasts you want and they're free. Everything's free. Yeah, but or the, the there's is, a Patreon world where yeah, some people right. seem to be making a decent coin, yeah, but not that many. It's just sustainable, right? It's yeah. a, maybe if they're lucky. Uh, but that's not what you're asking. You're asking like, hey, can I get my show on Netflix? Yeah, can you get a show? Can yeah. I do a show? Can right. I? Is there something beyond this? Yeah. And the answer is who knows? Probably. You too. Merry Christmas. See you soon. I will. Merry Christmas. Um, yeah. So like, uh, so so, but who who knows? But you got to start. The 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 good news is that you can amass an audience. It doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be have some kind of impact. And that is your currency to break in. Like, okay, well, I have a podcast and 20,000 people listen to it. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And then you can get ad, you can you can read ads and kind of keep yourself afloat while you lever that into something at a bigger platform. Um, and then the second thing I would say is about TV is I don't watch TV either. Um, because the joy of TV, what I used to love about TV is gone now, which is not the content. There's plenty of good shows on. It's just that watching TV now just is like this ordeal for me. Like, okay, what are you going to watch? Uh, you got to decide. You have to turn on the TV and then turn on Apple TV and then find the thing that you're going to go to on the thing. You Remember which, which streaming you, thing it's in. You've got to Google that. That's what people yeah. do. They Google the name of a show to find out where to watch the show. Yeah. So now all these steps, right? And, uh, and then you've got to go to that thing, and then you've got to find it on that thing, and then you got to start it. Yeah. Now, that seems like, oh, that's not so hard. That is, for me, oh, that's like, huge. I was like, fuck you, buddy. I, that's too much work. Like, why am I working so hard? Yeah. And whereas what I used to do when I would come home, and I would like, didn't want to do anything, want to watch TV, I'd flop myself on the sofa, I'd turn on the television, one pre- one button, and I'd scroll through everything, and then I would watch a little of this, watch a little of that, and kind of, as I was, I'd see what was coming up on the grid, or what I had on the TiVo, and then maybe I would just watch something. And and the idea that, that any of this stuff is easier now, I feel like we're at the MS-DOS level of the business like 
Remember how hard that was? C yeah. prompt backslash. But then it's a net. But 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 you're. But but is it the MS DOS level that's a devil? It, like it's devolved to that, or is it like this is where it's going to evolve from? Because I don't. I fear the easy, and I don't like this particular iteration at all. I, I have the same problems you do. I'm like, what's the? What am I doing here? Navigating all these shows. Ninety percent of the ones they're smacking in front of my face are crap. Or mo- like ninety nine percent are crap. Yeah. It's a show. I have to find a show that I know I want to watch. Right. Otherwise, the stuff on offering they're offering is crap. I'm never going to ex- trust a Netflix recommendation. No, and and the thing about the thing about um, technology is, and all the sort of the tech people and the algorithm people, is that they insist that their algorithms work, and everyone knows they don't. They insist, like you know, you like this, you might like that. Like Amazon does it too. It's like, why would I want that? Like just this morning, the light on the Alexa is on. I'm like, oh, what's the light on for, Alexa? I have a notification for you. All right, what's my notification? Thinking that I have a package or something. I don't know what it is. And it's a notification telling me that, oh, remind, asking me that since I bought a book three months ago, I should rate it. And I was like, Alexa, never ask me this question again. Like, I will, I will pause asking you for ratings. Like, Alexa, stop all notifications. And then I have to go on the app, which I didn't do. I'm gonna do it today and turn off that. And I'm like, like this is bullshit. It's not what I wanted. And I, and I don't want to rate things. I don't want to have. An, I mean, they don't work. And by the way, half of what I used to love about watching TV was the serendipity of it. Like, I've never seen this show before. It's kind of interesting. I'll watch this for 10 minutes. And if I like it, I'll keep watching it. And if I don't like it, I don't... I can just I can just press... My thumb just does one thing. Whereas now, if I'm watching something and I don't like it, what do I do? You have to have a backup option that you've already ranked in your head. And then you have to have a backup Go back to that. to that thing. Right. And then look at that thing. And then, like, it's like, this is, like, too hard. And, and maybe... Maybe we'll all be trained just to do it. But... Um, that the trend line in all technology has been the opposite. Um, how do you? What's what is the Macintosh version of this? Right? How easy can you make it? Someone's got to make this easier for me. And when they make it easier for me, the problem is they're going to make it easier for me to not to unsubscribe. Right. And they're going to make it easier for me to say like, you know, I didn't watch Netflix this month, so I'm out. I'm, I'm not out, paying yeah. next month. I'll it, I'll, re, I'll watch Netflix uh, in December. Yeah, when there's uh, for know, one month, right? Which is what I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been pushed to that point because one thing you also realize is that all the good stuff. Uh, I mean, a lot of the good stuff that you used to be able to like go on Netflix. Let's say just if you wanted to watch an old movie, yeah. you used to be able to find a large number of yeah. good old movies on Netflix right. streaming, and now it's like no, none of them. They're they're not. They're, there's nothing to watch. You have to f- or pay original for content, it. yeah, or original content. But you have to pay, or like that's a, that's a separate, you know, yeah. problem. Uh, but like both pr- in both senses, it's like anytime I need, I want something for real, I'm gonna have to pay for it. There's no, it's not just sitting yeah. there waiting, right. waiting for me. Like, uh, I, mean, so, I, I would, I would flip around the TV and pretty much always land up on TCM, right? Right. The only thing I really want to watch is an old movie. Yeah. And then now it's like pretty much if I'm gonna turn on the TV, which I don't do anymore, I would, I'll turn it on. Go right to the Criterion channel. Right. That's it. I subscribe to that. So I have, so, you know, that's been nice because they have always had good shit. Yeah. 
or I'll watch the Chappelle, you know, on Netflix. That's about it. Right, like everyone else did. Yeah, but I'm like only because I've been reading about it. Like, oh, I want to watch that, and then I'll and then I know it's Netflix, and I'll turn it on, and it's going to have minimum. And I, and I, I, I don't think that it's because I'm phenomenally lazy. I mean, I am phenomenally lazy. No, I've been hearing this but from that's a lot. Not of, why. I've been hearing this yeah. very complaint from a lot of corners. Uh, and and they're charging me money now, which they're pretty soon they're going to have ads on there anyway because it's the only way they make any money, right? So they're charging me money, and they're not, and they're making it harder. Why am I doing all the work? Yeah. Well, when Netflix, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when Netflix starts showing ads because I think that a lot of people are going to bolt at that point because um, it's like oh, it's, you're going to see shitty content plus ads. I don't know. It's like it's going to be a weird combination. Uh, yeah, but it's the only way to do it. I mean, I don't think they're going to be able to. I mean, it's just sustain, not sustainable. You need no. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe we're in a brand new world. But like at ne- at no point in the history of show business has anyone made money only by selling content. It's like. No, you movies make money because you rent them to the movie theaters, and they make money because they're selling jujubes. Right. And then you're making money, even though it's a movie that probably like in the box office, but also because it's part of your library. Like you're making TV shows at a deficit, but you're renting them to the network that's selling them and making ads against them, and you keep right. the, the and thing, and then it goes into the syndication. And Netflix is just one has just one way of making money. One way of making money. If you're Amazon, you're like, I'm going to sell you toothpaste. Right. They have, Yeah, they have multiple ways. Yeah. It's true. It's interesting to see where that's going to go. But, you know, my main interest is the content. And I remember you saying, you wrote two pilots recently and you thought they were the best you'd ever written. I don't know how recent. I, I was listening to uh, you say this on Martini Shop. Oh, yeah. And they didn't get, they didn't move forward. And, I mean, do you felt like, was this, was this... A frustration beyond just well, fuck these ones. This didn't work out, or did you feel like they should have worked out? Why didn't they work? Why? Didn't well, you can never do that. I, mean, I always feel like they should work out. Why didn't they work out? Every now and then, when it happens, and every now and then, if you have like a moment in your career, you go back and you think, okay, well, I that one wasn't good, or not good, but like that one didn't hit it. That one wasn't something was missing from that. Um, when you have a sh- when you write a pilot or you write a or you do you, you do a series, this is all the same, you know. Um, uh, one of them was more like it's a sign, it, it, like it's a different world now because it's not like one of them. You know, I was I, I worked really hard on and for a long time, and um, and I was I was convinced to do it. Like I wasn't it wasn't I was resisting, but like they wanted me to do it. I agreed to do it. I kept saying to them, is this really, do you really think if you want a multicam? Is that what you want? Like, we, that's what we want. That's why we're here. I had, I pitched them away that single cam and, or a different, slightly different version, like more, I don't know what the word would be, contemporary, I guess. Um, Can you describe what the concept was? Is that, or is that DL? Well, it's sort of like, yeah, you know, it's like, I don't want to, like, but what, but the point was that they, they're like, no, we, well, this is what we want. We want this. Don't come to us again and give us your quirky single camera take because we really want the multicam. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, no, listen, like, you've convinced me. I mean, there is a multicam version here that I would love to do because I love multicam. I was just trying to, like, you know, right. you know, give you an option. Um, and so what happens when you, until we wrote it, notes, and did all this stuff, and was very happy with it, uh, and then they didn't, they didn't go forward. And, and so I was like, oh, I was pissed, right? And so then a couple months later, I called up my agent and said, listen, 
I just need to know because now it's the ordering season's over. You know, all the things, these things, all these things take. You know, now they're all year round. Um, what did they buy? Like, what are they making? Like, what did, what did I miss? And he says nothing. They didn't buy. They they didn't do anything. They bought an animated thing. They didn't do any. They they, they their option was not this or that. It was not, we're not doing it. This thing that they wanted me to do, they really convinced they wanted to do. You know, they six months later, they just don't really want to do it anymore. They opted for nothing. They opted for nothing. Um, well, for some reality and contests and this broadcast network and uh, and an animated show. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I get it. Okay, all right. I mean, I'm sort of like, like, why did I waste my time? But on the other hand, I can see as from a company perspective that they want options and that, that they're willing to pay for these options. So what am I complaining about? But, you know, you can only really write something good that you care about and want to make. And, and then you have to be prepared to have somebody say, oh, we're not going to do it. Um, so that's kind of a, that, that, that is a new, that is the new world that, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, You'd be able to shop it around. Well, five, no, five years, ten years ago, you can never do that. But because um, well, they assign, they, they own it. They own but five it. years, ten years ago, um, you know what they you were up against specific projects. They chose those projects, not your projects. So, I've been in the position of having my stuff made, and I know what stuff they didn't make. I've been, you know, I've gotten you know, TV series on the air, and there were other series that didn't go. Um, I've been on the air, been basically canceled and replaced by something that was like different. Uh, so, you, you, the idea was like you're always competing for a slot, and the slot always exists. And now it's like, well, we don't even know the slot exists anymore. Right. And so that's weird. Um, but it's funny because everyone says the same thing to me. Now, everyone's saying, maybe it's just me. I don't know. This could be just. Tell me, like, we're looking for this thing that you want to do. And they'll say, like, this is what I really want to do. And they'll say, well, we're looking for that thing. Like, everyone, streamers, the streamers are looking for multicam. They want a multicam show. So and, I kept hearing. And yeah. I, I, ride, I, ride, I, I fucking wrote one. And then they're like, oh, we don't know about multicam. Like, they, they, it's like. They just a change on a dime? Well, it's just that it, 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 no one is fully, no one is fully committed to this sort of streaming on-demand model. They, they are as a piece of business, but as a sort of, they don't know what that is. Like, and so if you're, if you're Amazon, you're like, we're 100% behind that. Well, but except we're going to buy sports. Sports are not on-demand. Sports are, they're playing the game now. Netflix, the same thing. Look at what Rupert Murdoch did with Fox, right? He sold the studio. He kept the broadcast networks. Now he's assembling little component pieces of production to be able to feed the broadcast network. But he's in, he's, you know, 80% committed to like day and date, you sit, you watch. You sit, you watch. Which I think is not dumb. I think that's... And so that's coming back, you think? Well, I think he's doing it. I mean, he's, he's got a, he's doing it. Like, that... He knows what got, he's doing. They have Tubi, which is like a free streaming service. So I think there's going to be some, I don't know, some version there. Some yeah. Tubi. But that, he's a, they're investing in that. But that's a different vision for the future. And I feel like 
the consumer, which is what we're talking about today, the consumer is like, stop it with the choices all the time. Right. Stop it with making me do all this work. Like, it takes 15 minutes to watch a TV show. It's like, just to get the TV show on. Right. Like, stupid. Yeah. I don't know if I'm on Yeah, I mean, you know, my interest is always in how these forces are aligning to, like, to make, result in better better stuff being greenlit, better stuff being made, and better stuff being shown, or shittier stuff being greenlit, shittier, cheaper stuff. Well, look, there's more, right? There's, so more, there's more, 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 yeah. So there's going to be some So there's going to be good, more good stuff, and there's going to be more shitty stuff. There's just going to be more of it. Yeah. So you just have to just, as a, as, a, as a viewer, you have to just Well, how do you feel, as, as a creator, how do you feel like you're, I mean, are you looking to do... Are you looking just for like the next show that hits and like the next Sullivan and Son or the next whatever show that yeah. you enjoy working on? Did, I'm assuming you enjoyed working on the Kevin Hart sitcom yeah, yeah, that you moved out yeah. here for. Yeah. Well, I, I was here anyway. Oh, you were here, okay. Yeah, that was one of the reasons why. Um, yeah, no, I think, I mean, the benefit of the opportunity, right, explosion, is that you can. You can spend time developing a project that may or may not go, but could go. Like, whereas before you kind of knew what they were looking for. Like, it's got to be a multicam this or a multicam that or a single cam this or a drama right. one hour. Like, you knew like where these boxes had to fit. And so, if it if the the project you were thinking about didn't really fit that, you're like, well, let's not. Don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. Whereas now you can spend. I mean, I spent about a, you know almost a year developing a project that we're ready to go out with, and, and uh, you know probably next month. That is insane. Like, I would never have thought about it a year ago, uh, or t- five years ago. Would never have like there was no, no place for it. But now you're like, well, maybe there is a place for this. Could you kind of give a sense it's of what just, it is? Yeah, it's set in Clarksdale, Mississippi, set in the Delta. It's a mm-hmm. contemporary story, contemporary future. It's about a woman who runs the she runs a little, little grocery store there, a little store there. It's a black woman lived there a long time. Families from there, kind of the heiress in a way of a civil rights legacy, small one, but you know, nobody famous, but. Her dad was like in there uh, in the 60s, and uh, and she's been teaching. She volunteers in school, and uh, one 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 year at Clarksdale High School, which is like predominantly black, mostly black, because all the white kids have gone to the Tupelo. <laughs> well, the seg they call them the segregated academy, like the the Lee the Lee Academy they call them sometimes, uh, which are private schools. Um, this is true. This is the, the way it is now. Right. And uh, the test scores go up 11% in Clarksdale High. And they go up just enough, just to hit the threshold, that it uh, it releases extra money from the state. So the state's just going to get the school. The state has promised, if you can get your test scores up to here, all of the, all of the uh, school districts... Then you'll get reward, and this will be this like five million dollars, six million dollars. Which, if you're the small school in a poor area, that's a huge, huge thing. But the problem is, is that the state investigators like that could not possibly have happened. Right. This perfectly convenient. This is not going. This did not happen because, and, and it's like a little bit racist because it's like, well, those kids would never be able to do this, and like the system's kind of designed for them not to do this. And it comes down to the fact that there was one. There's one wild card in the in the exam, which is that she was the proctor, because she volunteers to proctor for the exams. You need like everybody's separated in rooms. So you need extra proctors, and they pretty pretty sure that she helped those kids cheat. 
And she's kind of like never been stuck her head out. She's never tried anything. And uh, and the pilot is really about the did she or didn't she? And the story, the serious story, takes this woman from this moment, her store, her legacy, uh, all the way to the state house in Jackson, Mississippi, where she becomes the first black female governor of Mississippi, eventually. And it's about her political growth and her political, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a famous old American story, but it was just with a different protagonist. It's, it is a fictional, this is based on someone real? It's, uh, specifically? Or? No, but it should, no, but it feels like it is. Okay. Um, it's super real and super it's some of it's funny and some of it's dark is it a half hour or an hour it's an hour it's an hour um, and I'm doing it with three, three other writers I'm doing with that I've known for a long time they're from the area and uh, two of them are these incredibly funny interesting uh, writing academics really they teach uh, they're college professors but they're great and uh, so we've been talking about it for a year, and I'm like, a year uh, no one's going to buy this. But I actually feel like we have a shot. It's a really compelling story. It's funny. The great characters are great, and then it has this arc that this story of of the political awakening and political growth of a woman um, that just seems real. And also, it's like you know, a lot of the American novels and movies made about this, but nothing made about a black woman from Clarksdale, Mississippi. From Clarksdale, Mississippi. Yeah. I've been to Clarksdale once. Yeah, it's great. It's a really interesting place. The, what's the blues club, the famous blues club? There, uh, Ground Zero. Ground Zero, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, went, I, went, I stopped there specifically to go into Ground oh, okay. Zero. Just to, you know, for the, because I was really into that lore. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, like, that's the idea. Is like you set it in a place that has layers and layers and layers of history, but, but it's really about the future. Right. Have you had a drama go to a series before? You were writing one when we last spoke years ago. Yeah, yeah. A sort of a drama, it was drama, dramedy. I've always tried to do it. Um, uh, uh, I, I, but, but my, 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 I'm, I'm too obsessed with like you know character and making funny jokes. So like this one is good because I'm the, I'm, that's what I do. Like that's my contribution is just the story structure, the series structure, the way we're like building the characters and the. And making sure it's got some funny shit in it, yeah. um, but it's not my story. I mean, I'm a white guy from the Northeast, and my my, my co- colleagues and partners in this are black people right. from the South. So. I assume they were. Yeah. Um, wow, there's my uh, barber. I got my car. You've been noticed by a lot of people here. You're a true New Yorker, I'm as like they a say. Like a local, yeah. It's in my local coffee place. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of where I'm. Um, Right, you're going to bring that out next month. Bring it out next month, and I have a couple other things I've been doing. So, like things that I'm interested in, and uh, that I probably wouldn't. I don't know. I don't think I would have let my mind go to those like ten years ago. I would have been more focused on the marketplace and what it wants. The benefit now is the marketplace is so insane. Yeah. Like, who knows? So, yeah. So the a ca- lot of chaos. Is, there is uh, some freedom. A lot of it's about new, new newness, passion, weirdness. Uh, take a flyer, a lot of that. It's like, and so what I say to my colleagues, partners on this project and the Delta project is like, I am here just to make them feel like we're gonna actually make a show. Like that. Okay, well, it's an interesting story. It's got all sorts of things going, going, you know, going for it. 
but he's here just because he's done this before, and if we give you $30 million to make the show, then you're, we're going to get a show back. Like, and so what, what, one of the writers here is an incredibly brilliant writer, really great, really, really, really great guy. I mean, I, have, I, I keep telling him, it's like, you know, you're, this is it. You're like, enjoy your time teaching at UVA because you're not going to be there in two years because you're just really good at this. Like I said, I'm like, I'm going to run this show until you realize that you could do it. And then you're going to do it. And then I'm going to, like, go on to the next thing. Visit the set and eat your lunch, mm-hmm. the free lunch, and pitch stuff. And that's how that's going to work. Um, he I doesn't mean, think it's true, but I think it really is true. How old is this guy? He's like, yeah, he's 30. 30 yeah, so this is a nice thing for a 30-year-old to hear from a... Yeah, it's like, exactly, from an old man, yeah, right. Exactly, and I think it's true. But it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I get it. And also, I feel like there's a tendency, this, this, this project specifically, the tendency for people in kind of show business entertainment to think that it's really hard and really specific and like kind of you couldn't possibly learn it whereas the people that I'm working with here are total amateurs of this I mean I'm mean not amateurs but they're totally new to it I should say and intuitively they kind of know what we need they're, they're, they're pitching things and stories and characters and way to describe them that it's like oh yeah that's exactly right so there's, there's even less for me to do mm-hmm. which is you know I, 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 uh, my career goal, right, is to go home. Right. Are you working on anything uh, other than your like journalism? I mean, not journalism, but your your, your essays. Are you working on like another a third book? Uh, well, that, is that in your? I'm working on a sites? play, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm working on a play, a two-person, two-man play, and uh, so that that I hope I'm gonna in a burst of something. I'll take a week and not bang it out, but take a week. Noel and, Coward style. No, it's something like that. It'll it'll be it'll take longer than that, but but at least get it down so I can play with it. Right. That'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be, it'll a Rob be Long yeah, play. Yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah. I mean, I've I would I I love your your two books. No, thank you. Yeah. The thing about the play is that like I'm in New York and I go see plays and they're like it's great and I had this I told a friend of mine who's like in a show. Um, and we were like meeting. I, I, I saw her, and then I met her the next day for lunch. Something. She's like, "Well, come by the theater." So I went by the theater, and it was empty. And it was like the ghost light was on, and like it was so cool. The I romance said, of it. Yeah, and I said, "This is what I want. I want to walk into a. Th- I want to walk into a theater in the middle of the day for the rehearsal. For the rehearsal. Yeah. I love the way." Um, uh, have you? I don't know if you've read Somerset Maugham's like nonfiction books. Uh, he in uh, one of them is called The Summing Up, and he kind of talks, you know, basically covers every phase of his career. And one of them is, of course, when he as a playwright and the kind of romantic way he describes it, as well as how he describes why he never wanted to do it again at a certain point. Oh, right. It all kind of was. It, it all kind of infected. It's very infectious. Yeah, it's like. I mean, that's also part of the, what I used to love about television and still do, like the multi-cam, the idea of going on the stage, like right. get in the morning, the writers are coming in, and like I would go come in late because I'm a, just, that's what I, I do, and I'd be in an 11, and I'd get a cup of coffee, and I, the writers would be in a 10, and they'd be like, what's, what's going on, where are you guys, you know, what's going on, and I'm like, all right, we'll come back, and then I would pre- I'd come up with a reason to go to the stage, 
And uh, I mean, I didn't really need one as a showrunner, but I kind of wanted to have a, a reason so that I was like, I'm just here, just dropping by while you guys are rehearsing before the run through. And then someone's you go to the, question, though. and then someone's got a question, or someone's got to want to say, or just to show the flag, and then you say something to the director, and then you ask, oh, I got to ask the prop guy, do you get that big cake we're looking, whatever it is, right? Yeah. I could have done that on a phone, right? But you just want to circulate a little bit, and it was like. It, it was like a, it's a management tool, um, but it's also it was like I really loved it. I loved, loved being it. on the stage. stage. Does, is it a sense? Is it like? Is it a feeling of? Um, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this, but it's like you're the phantoms in your head, having like finding friends in the real world in terms of these actors. Like you're as a writer, it's such a solitary experience. Not in a writer's room, but when you're actually doing the fucking writing, it's a right. solitary ass experience. Right. And then when you have a, it seems like it's a, it seems like you, you gain a family for your, for the little things in your head. Yeah. When you have a show that you're working on, when you have actors right. that are there for possibly 10 years. And they're doing stuff. And if they're really good, they're doing stuff that you didn't expect. And like, it teaches you something about life, which is that like the life doesn't follow the script, you know, like, you know, whenever it certainly happens like in relationships of all kinds, but like when the, when you, the, the person in the you're in a relationship with, you're, you're wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your son, your daughter, whatever, right? When they refuse to follow the script you've written for them, right? like, I don't, no, no, this is not how this is supposed to go. You're supposed to say these words, and I'm supposed to say these words. This is how it's go. That's how. And when they refuse to do that, like, that's where all the conflict comes from, and I think the same thing when the show, show business, when you have an actor, and you're like, no, I wanted you to say it this way, not that way, and the actor's like, well, no, that's not how this works for me. Right. I'm like, can I say it this way? And if they're really good, you're like, thank you. Yeah, it's better. And if they're, and he's telling you if they're really good, they're wrong. In which case, you say, hey, I don't think this isn't working. Try try this. And he's like, good point. Thank you, Toots. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I, I yeah, I, I mean, that's a. I think that's like it's a very romantic uh, situation. Yeah, it's great. When you have, especially when you're dealing with good people and like with talented people. Yeah, right. If you're lucky. But the thing about it is, if you're you're the showrunner. If you're in charge, you cast those people. So sometimes you cast people and they're really great. Let's we'll go back to the very beginning. And they're a little, they're a little, you know, I was like, shit, really? He's got more, he wants to talk about this again? Ugh. But that's sort of a privilege when you're talking to somebody who's really good and acting is this weird magic thing. Actors always talk about their process, but that's just a lie. It's magic that they do. You just have to, this is the sorcery, you have to just do this part. You know, like, well, in, in the magic version, this guy needs to talk about it. And so I gotta have I gotta have a conversation with him so that the magic works. Right. I don't know. I mean, there are worse things to have to do. Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, there's something you said on a recent, uh, uh, I think, martini shot, which is sometimes it's just also you have to make sure they're heard. Yeah. Like, that's all they really want is to be heard. I think it's all anybody wants, really. I mean, really? When you get right down to it? I, had a, I gotta run, but I gotta tell you this this, this one story, right? So I, I went to this uh, open house, this one day, open day house, whatever it is, at the Yale Divinity School. And I, because uh, I wanted to sit in a couple of classes, but one in specific. Because there's a guy uh, who I've heard about, who, I think he wrote something. I don't think he wrote, I don't think it's a book, but he was a head of some kind of surgery at Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, and then he went to divinity school and became a 
an ordained minister and also a doctor. And then when he so retired from surgery, he became the chaplain at Yale New Haven Hospital. And so it's kind of amazing because you could go, if you have to want to speak to the chaplain at Yale New Haven Hospital, you're speaking to somebody who's a doctor too. So he understands the problem. And so he's, he's talking about all of that stuff. It's like really kind of moving his work, what he does, right? Because if you're in a hospital and you are talking to the chaplain, it's, it's bad news, right? Like that's why you're like, when the chaplain's involved, it's not good. Right. Yeah. Specter of yes. finality. Somebody's going to, somebody, you're going to die, somebody's going to die, somebody died, you're die, you know, something, yeah. you know, bad. And so, and, he's, and there's all these young, these students are there, and they're, like, asking him questions about his day and all that stuff. And there's one person asks, like, so what do you say? Like, what do you say? What are the words? Like, and the guy said, well, you know, it's interesting, because what I discovered was as a doctor, I had to say stuff. Like, people want you to talk. They, they want you to say certain words, like, you'll be fine, but they, 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 you need to speak. But as a chaplain, what I do now mostly is I just listen. Like people don't want me to say anything. They just want me to bear witness. Just listen. And that's kind of what everybody wants. Just listen. Just be there. Like you're here, I'm talking, and you're listening, and that's fine. And I'll leave thinking it's great. And I kind of sometimes feel like we forget that when we're making TV or movies. Like, like... I don't know, maybe we don't write enough scenes where people listen, and maybe making them, people don't listen enough. I don't know. Like, I've never, ever, ever, ever regretted not saying something because I was listening. That's a, that's a, a poignant place to, to leave it. I, and I've noticed that when I really love an actor, it's an act, I mean, not since it's the only case, but an actor who knows how to visibly listen. Yeah. It's hard. Well, it's, it's hard and it's really captures, yeah. it really captures you. They're really there. They're yeah. there. They're there. Yeah. They're, and they're not only there, they're in, they are the, no matter how, you know, somebody who's really good at this is David Suchet, when he's doing Poirot in the BBC. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's such a good listener as Poirot. Yeah. And it turns that whole, you know cartoonish character that, that you know that everyone always plays like as a cartoon right. turns him into a real thing yeah he's really listening he's really listening and you know he's like you know he's figured something out that's a really good performance Actually, I love that series the series Me too. is so I've great been, I've been watching it since I was 12 yeah. oh yeah. yeah I like the outfits too the outfits are great I want that jacket his his tuxedos are fucking great. I mean, the, it, you know, the budgets went down as time went on, as, as you've noticed. Like, in the 90s, it was super high budget. Yeah. And they had all the great, like, big crowd scenes, and it all looked very yeah. uh, a period. And then as it went on, they got all, like, the cinematography went up, like, got fancy, but you notice there's no one around there's anymore. no one around, that's right, because <laughs> they can't afford the, out, the outfits. They can't yeah. afford the outfits, they can't afford the big crowds in London town and whatever, and it's like they're a out. Fr- a friend of mine who runs the, has a, a shop here in town called Crowley Vintage, it's in Brooklyn. And Sean Crowley, like, he's a genius. Like, he's the guy is, like, encyclopedia of menswear, like, you know, like, mostly, you know, Anglo-American. Yeah. And he's got the, the best vintage store in the world and it's Brooklyn if you have time you should go if you're interested in that stuff he's and he's a really nice guy he's it's really called, what is it called? called Crowley Vintage it's in Crowley. Dumbo Crowley Vintage I'll write it down and he's like it's open on the weekends so he'll open it if you want to you know mm-hmm. but it's and it's beautiful inside and it's got all this great stuff he's an incredible character and really knows his stuff 
and uh, I was once watching a Poirot thing and I just texted him uh, I'm watching Poirot uh, and I think it's the I forget what the title is but um, Hastings you know his friend the, the yeah. Watson is wearing this jacket and it's like and I described just like two things about the jacket and I'll, I'll, and I'll, I'll send you a screenshot and Crowley's like no I know the jacket it's this one I'm like yeah that's exactly right oh I love that jacket like I've been looking for that jacket. Like he's, he's looking for a version of that jacket, right? He logged it into oh, his, he head. It's in his head. Yeah, he like knows it. That's yeah. what's great about that show. Yeah. Alfred. And about his performance, you were saying like uh, David Suchet's performance in, uh, in yeah. that show. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm. I mean, you know the character really well, so you know that something's happening inside his brain, but he's not telling you what it is, and that, and and and. There's some, it's like magic in, I don't know, in the eyes or something where he's, it's hard. He's telegraphing that it, he's, he, sh, he is showing you that all the wheels are turning inside his brain, but not at all which direction they're going in. Right. Which is infuriating because you're trying to like figure out who he thinks did it. Right. Um, but also is true to the character because if you're a detective you have to listen actively but not tip where tip your hand tip your hand yeah. right you're not playing to an audience if you're a real detective right like, right you're trying to like let the person who's talking know you're listening but not that you're drawing conclusions which right. is actually really hard to do yeah you you have to kind of fade into the wall yeah. but yeah and that's yeah it's a good point and it's something that we don't even like calculate because we're thinking of it you know, we're thinking of the character as this, this like foppish, like you know, yeah, oh, unrealistic, right, right. da 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 da. But but the point is that that one fundamental action that he's pulling off in a very real way makes the whole thing, like, what makes the rest of it all fit right into place. Right. It's, it's brilliant. It makes sense that he's a magician too, David Suchet in real life. Uh, I gotta run. I'm sorry to say. I uh, appreciate. No, listen. So that you came out no, and that uh, we were able to catch up. Yeah. Listen. So how long are you here? I'm here till Tuesday. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, are you here just for fun, or are you here for? Mostly for fun. I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to get a few, uh, a few of these down. Well, that's cool. I, so now we got to replace Jeff Garland. Yeah, I got to replace Jeff Garland. Or not really, just kill. Him. Or just kill him off. Kill just off. Yeah. yeah. Who needs I mean, dads anymore? Like, but it's also not like you. That that's a hard one. It's like. He's Jeff Garland. He had a heart attack. Right. It's like how you're not really going to have to... He didn't look... I know I saw... He, he was at a screening. He didn't look good. He right. didn't look good in he person. Really well, he looked he looked sickly when I saw him... This is years ago, but like we, I went to an Arrow Theater, whatever, old movie screening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like there? five easy PCs. He was there by himself. By himself. I just noticed him walking out, and he was like... He did not look well at all. Yeah, I think that's... So it's going to be easy. That's an easy part to write. Right. I'm gonna go pick up my car, get the car inspected. Complicated thing to do in New York State. I get inspected and then, and then registered today. And I have to do that. I have a week left to do it for my insurance. You gotta redo your insurance because like insurance will cover you for two weeks, but you have to like it's in New York State. Show. Do you want a cigarillo to go? Because I know you're a smoker. I would love one. Thank you. Yeah. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. 
It's up to you, New 